Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And the kids in school said, amen. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Father, draw near to us. Nor does we draw near to you. Would you draw near to us? Would you speak? Lord, we don't want to just gather and sing and, and hear words as if they're just some distant uh, thing. Come and invade our hearts. Come and speak to us. Come and build us up. Let us see the beauty of who you are working us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you uh, would work and be active amongst your people and that you would be glorified, God. We pray that in your name. Amen. So imagine with me uh, for a minute, you are sitting in a room full of individuals spanning all different types of times and generations from all over the land. It's a pretty unique and completely fictitious room, but you're in it. And all of a sudden, one person in the room says, you know, I invented planes. The credit was given to my brothers and I, but they didn't do much. It was me. I invented planes. It started when we were young, laying under the stars and dreaming of flight, imagining what it would be like to take off from, from one spot and fly through the sky and end up in another spot alive. How cool would that be? Going through the clouds, soaring through the land. So we tirelessly worked and we invented the means to fly. We may have broken some bones. We may have fought a lot. It may have taken uh, quite a few iterations, but we did it and we flew. And now you can go to Cancun because of us. We, we invented planes. That's what we did. And then another person shares, well, I was the architect behind the first pyramid. I had this kind of nagging vision of what it would be like to extend the earth up into the sky, to form a mountain made by men in flat ground out of stone by taking rocks and stones from an over 20-mile radius, some of them weighing more than 50 horses apiece, and stacking them precisely and carving and arranging them so they would be beautiful and durable. In fact, you can still even see those things that I created. It took well over 20 years. A lot of people died well worth it. I was the architect of the first pyramid. You can still go see there and see the greatness of our people at one point in time through that creation. And then another voice adds, I was a painter in my days. I did a lot of stuff, actually. I sculpted. I, I liked math. I dabbled in anatomy and even in engineering, but painting was kind of my first love. That's what I really enjoyed. You may have seen one of my most famous paintings. Apparently, after I died, a lot of people flew all over the land to go in this kind of neat building and go see it. And it wasn't even my favorite painting, honestly, but everyone else loved it. It was just to some lady. It wasn't even that pretty. The colors weren't that great, but I called it the Mona Lisa, and they, they loved it. I preferred some of my other works. But I did enjoy taking colors and making this canvas come to life, bringing life out of something where there was nothing, and then you have this beautiful picture. I loved to paint. Upon hearing the stories of triumph and brilliance and artistry, you and I maybe tended to see those and think, you know, those were lives well lived. 
That was a good life. They nailed it. They knew why they were created and they lived for the reason that they were, they were created. Their lives were meaningful and well spent because of the things that they accomplished. Maybe if you were in the Olympics and you got to see Michael Phelps jump into the water and do his thing, you would have, you would have felt maybe uh, the same type of feeling. Or if you're into this thing, maybe if you see Taylor Swift orchestrate an entire stadium full of people. Mind you, a stadium is more than many towns have. And she entertains all of them in this beautiful mastery. Whether you like her music or not, she's really good at what she does. And you probably have that kind of same feeling. These people know why they were created. It seems natural to associate feats of grandeur with a life well lived. They did this awesome thing, so that life must have been well lived. But here's the question. Were those lives really well lived? That's what we have to prod at the end of the book. Were those feats, those great things that they did, were they enough to warrant a grade of, of passing or life well lived? Uh, as we close down the series and we hear from the preacher Solomon one more time, he's begging us to ask that. And if we've paid attention through this, the, the whole series, we would have to answer that question this way by saying, I don't know. I don't know if that was a life well lived. We don't have all the necessary information to make that call because life under the sun is not won or lost through our accomplishments. This has been Solomon's message the entire time. Planes, pyramids, and paintings are awesome, but they are not ultimate. We have a really hard time turning awesome things into ultimate things, though. We harness our gifts and our desires and our, pan, and our passions to accomplish great things, and the author's even been kind of pushing us to, to live life well. Hey, pour out your life, work hard, dream, take risks, have fun, enjoy food, enjoy the gifts that you have in your life, pour your life out. Just know that the toys and the treasures and the talents that you gather and muster are not the main point for life under the sun for the sons of Adam. Just be careful, enjoy your life, have fun. Be careful about making secondary things primary. If we back up to see the full picture before we land the plane of this book, it opened with the theme First 11 verses, all is vanity. And then the preacher tells us all the way up to chapter 6, verse 12, about his quest to find meaning in life. He opens it, all is vanity, and he, he kind of sends you through his drudgery through the world, chasing all the things that we tend to chase to find meaning, and you get to kind of see him along the journey. And then he shows us the difference between wisdom and folly. There's a lot of confusion, but he shows us that all the way in chapter 7 through 11. And then he goes exclusively into aging, death, and dying in chapter 12 in the opening before restating his point again in chapter 12, verse 8, that all is vanity. And now in the last or the final five verses, we get what seems to be an editorial note. It's a separate person, not Solomon speaking to us. And he's making a note and he's writing into the book for how we should see it. He's showing us how this is written and what we should do with it for our lives before also stating the primary theme and then giving us that actual, um, the duty of man. So who is this editor? Who's this voice? Who's the one speaking to us? I have no clue. And neither does anyone else. But why does he add the note at the end? We do know that. It's so that we'll heed the words. His point is be really careful not to just read this and nod your head and say, that's cool, and walk away. Heed the words in it. Why? Well, the Bible is God's story. It's his revelation of himself, his plans, his purposes to us. And it, it lays out he created, why he created, and what living inside of that creation should actually be like. In and amongst that, we cannot lose sight of the fact that God, the creator God, reached out and he spoke to us for the purpose of revealing himself and getting to know us. 
Every other world religion or ideology or framework is the opposite of that. They involve humanity striving towards something, reaching, trying and working to get something. Humanity trying to pursue God or an idea or a goal or heaven or nirvana. It's all humanity trying to reach out and get. They're doing the striving, but in the Bible, it's God that does the reaching out. This is fundamentally different. God moves towards us. Solomon has been trying to show us how to live in line with this reality. If God has really shown himself to us, and if he has created humanity to be in relationship with him, then Solomon is, is imploring us, do not try and live your life out of step with this reality. If God is real and he's reached out, it means something. And the things that it means should, should actually uh, fulfill or they should, they should flow into the day-to-day of your life. I heard someone say, and I'll paraphrase it because I, I don't remember exactly how they said it, but they said this, we've watched a million hours of television and we thought about it countless days, what the good life looks like. And we have a good idea like in our mind based on the things that we've seen and the words that we've heard in the years that we've lived, through the accumulation of those things, we, we're like, we got it. I know what the good life is. But God has on his resume the creation of everything ever. As creator of life, he may just have something to say about what the good life really looks like, and it may be wise for us to listen. Not only has God made himself known, he also has something to say about how to live inside the creation that he has made. And, and Solomon makes us answer this question, do you trust God with your life or not? Underneath that whole book is this question over and over. Do you think he is good or do you think he's trying to rob you? Do we trust that the author of life knows how to live the good life or do we shake a fist at the heavens cursing God that you're wrong and you're trying to hurt me and you're trying to take the good life away from me? Do we stand before the tree in the garden like Adam declaring, I can do better on my own? So we end up audibling out of God's call for what a good life looks like to to live out of the wealth of our short knowledge for the the reality that we think we know better than he does. I recently listened to a couple who claim to be deconstruction coaches. They help people deconstruct the faith that they had at one point to, and this is in their words, to evolve into something new and better. But they said this, there's no right or wrong way to deconstruct. There's no preferred destination. There's no preferred ending point. So some can deconstruct into atheism and some can deconstruct into agnosticism. Some can deconstruct into a new version of Christianity that they made. And some may deconstruct and end back in the same version of Christianity as before. And all of those are good, right, valid, and beautiful. Why? Because it's your story, right? What does that mean? And where does that absolute nonsense come from? Well, it's a product of modernity and the belief that, that yourself and the autonomous self is actually God. And because you are God, you get to decide what is true for you. And that the preferred destination in life for everyone is simply this, current happiness. That's the only goal. You just get what makes you happy. Current happiness is the goal. And this is why atheism and devoted orthodoxy are both great options. As long as they make you happy, it's all good. That's absolutely fine. This is also why there's no preferred destination as far as proper belief. Beliefs are irrelevant if the goal is just current happiness. And beliefs don't matter if, you want, uh, if what you want is all that is actually valued. So deconstruction coaches, they kind of do this. They don't care for their players or where they land. 
because they've decided for themselves that there's no ultimate truth and it doesn't actually matter where they land. As long as you smile, I've done a good job. And then, and then they're out. In other words, those deconstruction coaches are just cheerleaders yelling, go chase the wind. Rah, rah, go, run faster, run harder, do all that you can to be happy, pour yourself out, do what's right in your own eyes, chase everything that you've ever wanted and that will make you happy. Whatever seems good in the present moment, go for it, it will be great and that is the good life. In the face of culture where countless people are living like this, hear me friends, Solomon says, and the editor agrees and affirms that God cannot be removed from the equation. No matter how loud you yell, how much you, you, you talk on a podcast, or how much you write on the internet, you cannot remove God. Not only will it not actually work, but hear the words as he ends of the book. It'll lead you into eternal judgment where all people go, and you won't like where you stand when you get there. This is an unpopular truth that Solomon says, and it's an unpopular truth that we will say, and hopefully we'll live in light of this truth. Judgment eternally comes for for all. In the closing verses, the editor starts with a kind of observation or comment. He says that the preacher has taught, and he's talking about Solomon, the preacher has taught the people, and he's making a, a, a note that Ecclesiastes is written with knowledge. Knowledge that's carefully weighed, studied, it's arranged in a really smart and beautiful way. So this isn't a a sloppy writing by some scatterbrained fool, and this isn't a half-brained thought that really needed a whole lot more time to, to bake, but he had a deadline and needed to get it out. Not only was it crafted with care and arranged in a specific and purposeful way, the author strains to find words of delight. It's it's wisdom, it's beautifully orchestrated, and it's actually really pretty and really good words. There's enjoyable words inside of the text. Think of some of the wordsmithing that went into Ecclesiastes, the things that we've heard. For everything there is a season. Musicians have been ripping this off ever since. We heard things like, and God makes all things perfect in due season. We heard the words, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. We heard vanity of vanities. Then we heard the logic, better is the ending of a thing than the beginning. And many, many more are inside of this book. It's not just knowledge, it's beautiful knowledge. It's poetry that's meant to reach into the depth of the soul. It's wisdom, beautifully crafted, beautifully articulated, and it's supposed to be enjoyable to hear, and then it reaches into our soul. It's as if the editor is saying, praise God for this writing. Not just what it says, but how it says it. This book is a gift. This book is one of the many ways that God reveals his character to us. It's a manifest way that God shows his grace to his people. Hear this. You weren't left with no clue, no guidance, and no framework. You weren't sent on a journey with no map or no compass or no idea or no truth. God has spoken, and in those words, you begin to see his face and his character if you begin to look for them. That's why the editor then says that these words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed, he's speaking about the book in particular, but the words have a bit of a double meaning. He's also speaking about the, the, the wisdom are, are like goads to the reader in this, but much like the wisdom in other parts of the Bible are also like a goad for you. They're viewed as goads to the reader, and that may raise the question, cool, what's a goad? What, what, what is that? It's a tool of a farmer and a shepherd, and it's used to drive animals down a road. It's essentially a stick with a sharp point, and it's used to spur stubborn animals. 
If an animal won't move where it needs to go, the shepherd will use the goad. If it refuses to take the path home or to safety or where it needs to go, the shepherd will, will poke the animal with it. And it's designed specifically not to badly injure, but to cause some pain for an effect. It's cause, it is designed to inflict just enough pain that it will move the animal or the being to where it needs to go. Make sure you get that. The goad is specifically tasked to bring pain. I don't know if that changes your idea of what happens sometimes when you open the Bible or when someone preaches. Because I've had people say, I just want to be happier, and I just want to smile, and I just want to be encouraged. And Solomon in this book is going like, yeah, but sometimes you need the goad, though. Sometimes you need it to, to be poked with enough force to guide you out of rebellion and into compliance. A goad confronts the animal, it jolts it, it slams into its will to override the direction that it wanted to go in order to give them a better and safer one. Now, in the moment the goad collides with the animal, I, I do not think that the animal goes, I love you so much, thank you, may I have another? It's the gracious kindness of you to poke that sharp stick under my arm, oh, I love you, do it again. I, I doubt that that is it. The interaction is uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. There may be a, a stimulus of pain and simultaneous anger, but again, those are to bring about a change, a change of direction, which is interestingly enough, the definition of repentance, a change of direction, a change of course. The editor is trying to define the why here. Remember, we said we don't really know who wrote it, but we know why. He wants you to heed the words. To clarify, this book, though crafted beautifully and wisely and with care, should not be treated like a work of art that you, you set up on a pretty wall, and every once in a while you just walk by and you look at it, and you're like, oh, that's nice, and then you, you move on. This is meant to be dealt with not at a safe distance, but at a distance that confronts you with a specific task of, of sometimes uncomfortably jabbing you to cause you to turn away from sin and to God. This book is meant to be a stimulus of or to the soul to get you on the right path. One author says, Ecclesiastes is God's cattle prod. Congratulations, you and I are the cattle. He's trying to move us. The words are meant to push us not to expect lasting satisfaction in money and pleasure and instead to head towards God for the goodness that we need. This has been the point all over the book again. We run from thing to thing to thing. He goes, go to, go to God for that. Just try it, go to God. It's meant to steer us away from the foolish rage and the laughing mocking of the culture and instead push us towards other things like kindness, contentment, humility, and joy, and patience. Over and over, the book forces us away from the gravitational pull of sin and towards trusting God with what our hearts need most. If we were to do just a, a, a soul temp check, do you believe that God has what you need? Do you believe in the times of question that running to him will be what your soul actually needs? Because this is what Solomon is, is, is proclaiming, if not begging you to see. I chased everything. Please, will you see God has it? If you've been here through most of this series, I've imagined that you felt this goading at some point. I, I would assume the book has jabbed you, that maybe it pushed you or challenged you and and maybe you're mad at me, it was the book, I didn't write it, I just was trying to read it. Maybe it was how you use your time. 
or money or the way that you look at pleasure or way that you think that certain wisdom will fix all the problems in the world or maybe it confronted your view of family or success or legacy or work or or here's maybe the surprise one. Maybe it confronted you about you not being present in your life and just trying to get through everything. I'm not sure exactly what, what it was for you but likely there was a spot. There was a spot for me that it pressed on and your flesh winced as it confronted you. Hear me, that is not the cruelty of God, it's the manifest love of God in his pursuit of your soul. The, the words of Hebrews, right? The book that we, we just finished it like a year ago, a while ago, but this correction is proof of God's love. What did Hebrews tell us? If there's a son or daughter that the father never corrects them, he doesn't actually love them, he, he actually hates you. It is only through the correction that a father loves their sons and daughters. Verse 11 also says that the words of the wise of Hebrews are like nails firmly fixed. I'll admit this reference stumped me. I had no clue what it meant. There are a lot of times I read, I'm like, I kind of get it. And I read this, I'm like, I have no idea what he's saying there. When I heard nails, I'm associating it with pain or like hitting my thumb or like jabbing my finger or just something like that. And the writer is trying to say the way nails fix something to something else are the ways that this wisdom should be driven to and fixed inside of your heart. It should have staying power to, to be nailed deep into your soul and, and not be removed at every point. Imagine a railroad tie that has a nail driven deep into it so it stays in place on earth, right? It is done so that the railroad tie will be secure. In many ways, the nail is kind of a a synonym for an anchor, follow me. The wise words in Ecclesiastes, if you let them goad you, if you let them lead you and you let them guide you, even when it feels unpleasant, will be like an anchor in the middle of high winds. When the whole world has lost its footing, and is out of control, and maybe when you're tempted to lose your footing and go out of control, to be tossed to and fro by every fad or idea or social push, you can be firmly fixed because this truth and this wisdom is grounded deep inside your heart. The goad and the nail are a gift then to the church. They move you and they stay with you. The other side of being grounded, verse 11, says the words of wisdom are from one shepherd. Guys, with the help of the New Testament, we got to understand, because I think sometimes it can be a little harsh on people who live through the Old Testament. We get a lot of clarity that they, weren't, they didn't really have back then. With the New Testament, we can see this one shepherd is a forecasting and a prophecy to Jesus. Jesus is the one shepherd. He's the good shepherd who would come and save the lost. What the scripture is saying to us in the words of Ecclesiastes, hear this, because this is mind-blowing if you let it be, are actually the words of Jesus to you. These are the words of Christ. This is the leading of Christ before his incarnation. That is mind-blowing. Before he ever came to the earth, he's speaking to you so that he can shepherd you even through the words of the Old Testament, through Solomon and an editor and all the other stuff that happened. It's Christ speaking out. The writer says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. There are countless books. And now in our days, there are millions of hours of podcasts and blog entries and social voices and influencers and loudmouths and all kinds of stuff. Literally millions of millions of people weighing in on how to live and what life means. Everyone has a hot take. Everyone has a new idea. 
And the author says, be careful about putting your hope in the words of another beyond this one shepherd. You're going to have a lot of ideas coming at you. Be careful, you don't need a better idea. See, we're always looking for new knowledge and new take and new theories, whether it be a shortcut or just we find, like a lot of us will just admit, I just kind of find a thrill in something new. And the writer is warning you, do not stray from the words of the shepherd though. Do not feel to go the leading of Jesus and push him to the side. This is not a call to stop reading or to be ignorant, but it is a call to see through the word of God, you have the truth, the leading, the guiding that you need. You don't need to keep scouring the earth. See, how often do we go, well, when I just get all of the information, when I just get it all figured out, I just got to learn a little bit more, I got to do a little bit more, then I'll kind of obey and do. He goes, you have everything that you need already. If you're still searching for spiritual truth and the quest and surrender to the God who knows the answers and he's given them. There's a type of person that Paul warns about in the New Testament. One who's always learning and never arriving at truth, which is actually a horrifically sad thing. Always looking for more information and more information. No matter how much they look and how much they go for more information, they never actually know knowledge or truth. The editor is coming in hard saying, you don't need more information, you need to surrender. I started reading, and by reading I mean listening on Audible, <laughs> to a new book by John uh, Mark Comer, he likes his names. Um, but he had this quote, he said, we're more, we're more worried about not falling into workspace righteousness than we are about repenting. Like, oh, grace, oh, grace. Yeah, but you need to repent and you need to follow Jesus. And this is what the author is starting to tell us. You need to surrender. This is why the end of the book is presented in such a strong way. It says, this is the end of the matter. The case is closed. We're not waiting for more information We're not waiting for a couple more ballots to come in. We're not reanalyzing in light of the scope of modernity. Cultural changes haven't changed the word of God. The end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of man. That's it, case closed. See, we all ask the question, what's this life for? What's the meaning of life? What is the good life? What's the point of everything for humanity, right? And that's why we talked about, is it actually uh, planes and pyramids and paintings? What's this life for? And the book says, without flinching or even slowing down, the entire point of mankind is to fear God and to obey him. It's the point of life. It's the meaning of life. It is life. We spend so much time looking under every rock and behind every corner. We chase notoriety and sex and money and knowledge to find what we need, and it's in Jesus who's already given himself to us. John Calvin said it rightly, our hearts are like idle factories, meaning in our chase to to continually find something, we'll literally turn everything into God and try and worship it to see if maybe that thing will give us the thing that we need. We search and search and search for a way to fill us up and the writer is declaring, you will not find it out there. Trust me, I tried. The words to your heart and mind, the only place you'll find what you need is in the arms of the creator Fast forward to the other really good news that it kind of foreshadowed. Oh, and by the way, Jesus made a way back to him for you. 
Stop searching in creation because it is the creator that has been what you've needed the whole time. Turn to him. Remember him. Fear him. Obey him. That's where you find it. More practically, you are looking over and over for happiness out there when happiness comes from worshiping and obeying God. Man, if we could get that. Man, my heart has such a hard time forgetting. It's like amnesia all the time. Stop believing that God wants to to take your happiness and come to him and taste and see that he's good. How has he proven that he's done a good work? He sent his son to bleed for you. If anything, he's given the world to you and not taken it. This message is why Christianity is assaulted in the streets today. The whole world, like the deconstructed coaches, is just cheering you on. Chase the wind. Chase fulfillment. Tell me I can do it too. Let's go. Let's run. And and Ecclesiastes is saying, don't do it. The final message of Ecclesiastes may catch some of us a little bit by surprise. It's not that nothing matters. It's actually that everything matters. We keep hearing all all roads lead to death. Everyone dies. All the cool stuff that you've done uh, will probably be forgotten in a couple of generations. All that you've gained, you can't take to the grave with you. All that you have gotten, you'll give to someone who may be lazy and not even know who you are. All that you learn won't actually fix the, the problems. And the temptation over and over, like, oh, oh my gosh, is exasperation and fatalism. You just want to lay down and quit thinking that vanity of oh vanities means nothing matters at all when the opposite is the point from the preacher. Everything you do matters. How you interact with making your life matter through what you do is the problem, though. And everything you do matters because all roads lead to judgment one day. Every deed, every thought, every action, no matter how smart or sneaky you think you are, and some of us are oh so smart and sneaky, all will be brought into judgment, the good and the bad. What matters, therefore, then, is who Jesus is personally to you. All of a sudden, that kind of explodes our mind to look into the New Testament and see why Jesus turned to the apostles and goes, who am I to you? You keep talking about them and their opinions. Who am I to you? Is Jesus the shepherd who guides you, who you've trusted in a Savior? Is he the one who you throw the full weight of your hope into? Is he the king that you follow, or is he the king that you've ignored, the king that you haven't feared, and you've showed that you haven't feared him because you haven't obeyed him? We spend most of our days asking, what will make me happy? What will be fun? And Ecclesiastes begs the question that we don't like to ask all the time. Who's paying for your sin, though? And how will it go before you stand before the judge in the end? While that may sound unpleasant or unkind, it doesn't mean it's not true. One day Jesus, the king, will come. And on that day, for those who believe in him, it'll be a beautiful day. And all that trust in him and show that they fear God by obeying him will look into the eyes of their savior and their creator and they'll be declared innocent. He'll say, I paid for you. Come, well done, my good and faithful servant. I know it was rough. I know it hurt. I know it was hard, but I've made a way. I'm gonna put it all back together. Come on, come with me. I've already paid your debt. See, this is the beautiful message given and carried out by the shepherd. Not only do you not need to chase the wind and drive yourself crazy, you also don't have to be terrified of judgment. 
Why do people not like to talk about judgment? Because they don't like to believe it's real. But if you know that you've been declared redeemed and your debt has been paid, then you have nothing to fear. And then you see that Jesus is worthy of your reverence and your worship and he's worthy of obeying and following because he's not trying to hurt you, he's trying to love you. We're getting close to the end. I heard a quote by Robert Murray McShane. You may know him for a Bible reading plan that's all over the Bible apps. It's a great one. But he had a quote, and I think it kind of works well as we try and parse this end. This was a drive of his, of his heart. Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. That's what I want. As far as you can take it, make me that holy. Weed the garden, till the soil, produce fruit, Make me as holy as possible. He was so fully convinced that following God was the best path. And he had enough fear and reverence for God that his desire wasn't just to be made holy enough to get by. Don't hit you in the soul. The goal wasn't just to fear and obey as much as absolutely necessary or only on Sunday. From deep within, he trusted God and he remembered his creator and he wanted to hold nothing back. He wanted to be goaded. Not because he was a glutton for punishment, but he wanted the good father to guide him. He wanted his heart and life to be sanctified. So he was all in looking to and following Jesus more and more and more and more. Friends, I, I believe that he's describing the proper path of sanctification, slowly the weeding out of sin and the hardness of the heart that Jesus can do in our lives. And I believe that Ecclesiastes is an invitation to do the same, to hedge no bets. To stop diversifying your fulfillment portfolio. To not just believe that Jesus is your savior, but to actually believe that following him is the best course that your life could ever take. If I could try and just speak to our hearts, I wonder if the Lord may be asking some of us to let go of some of the remnants to let go of some of the wind that we've been secretly hoping in, maybe hiding or, or maybe just saying it's not that big of a deal, but there's things we've been putting so much trust and so much meaning into. And if King Jesus is, is saying, come follow me, goading you to say, would you leave that alone and let me guide you into the place that you need to be? Let go of the other hopes. I can't help but think of Jesus's words in the New Testament in Matthew 10, those who lay down their life will find it. We can't just skip over those words. The idea of laying down your life is terrifying. Why? Because something has to die. And Jesus is saying all the things that you think will make your life meaningful and the world values and that you want to chase, will you just lay it down and let me speak to you and follow me? Because the ones who try and, and keep their life and they, and they won't relent and they won't let up and they're only going to do what they want to do, they're actually the ones that lose their life. It's only when you stop holding out and you stop leaning partially in, and when you go all in on King Jesus, that he has all that you need, that the jail doors of your soul come flying off the hinges and you get peace. Joyful and hopeful peace. Does this mean everything in your life is just hunky-dory and smiles? No, pain's still coming, but the Lord is enough and he is good and he's, he's showing himself to be all that you've ever needed. This concept is why I love the 
the song Oceans, and some of you may like or dislike the Hill songs where it comes from. You can, I actually don't want to debate that with you, but man, there's a line that just gets me. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. I trust you with it all. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me, not wherever I want to go. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wonder. That's the line. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wonder, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Man, that line, take me deeper. Take me beyond where I can stand on my own. Right, because we all feel safe. If like I'm still in control, I still got toes, I can still do this. But when you're in deep enough water, when you have no ability to take care of yourself and it's beyond your comfort and all you have to do is trust God, that is scary because there's no insurance policy there. No other loves over the sun. No plan Bs, just full confidence. No looking over your rear, your rear view. No, no escape plan, just Jesus, you're all I need and you have all I need and I'm, I'm in. So take me further than I would go on my own. The simple questions that I'll lay as we close this morning are this. Is there winds and habits as action and actions that the Lord has been calling you to stop chasing? Maybe there are things that have been coming to mind lately in the sermons or in time or conversation or MC or Bible reading or I don't know, but is the Lord drawing things out and going, is it time finally that you're going to give me that? Or trust me with that? Or filter me into the equation with that? If the Lord is asking you to stop pursuing and finding deeper fulfillment in other things, if that's the case, would you walk into the gift of repentance and actually turn? Would you let the go change your direction? Would you repent? Friends, it is my desire that we stop playing around with repenting and we actually learn to repent. I confess this is where I was putting hope and meaning and I'm turning and I'm finding that in Jesus and it is better and it is good. Sometimes it hurt along the way, but he is better. I'm turning to him. And with that first question comes the simultaneous understanding or question, do I fear the Lord and show it by obeying him? Over and over and over, theologians have written into this text and what they're saying is, fearing the Lord is the duty of man and obeying him is proof that you actually fear him. So to say I fear you, but I don't obey you, doesn't actually work. It's the obedience that is the proof. And Jesus even says, and he ties it in another way too, he ties in the words love. Right? Those who love me obey my command. So a lot of times we're saying, God, I fear you, and Jesus, I love you, but no, I will not obey you. And he's going, when will you repent? When will you repent? Jesus may be calling or asking for a part of your heart that you've kept back and you've harbored away. If that's the case, trust him and lean into him. Stop waiting for a better time to obey. I don't know about you, and I've done that. I got two more weeks of this, another schedule, and I'll, I'll figure it out then. I got another month, I got to get through summer, I got to get to 2024, I got to get out of this gym, like then I'll kind of figure that stuff out. Faith is obedient when you hear though. What I tell my kids, and I love it, delayed obedience is disobedience. Friends, may we obey. May we see he's not trying to hurt you. It is only the heart that wants to harbor its own will that believes that God is hurtful and mean by trying to guide you to himself. 
If you have never turned to Jesus, I pray that you would as well. That you would see the goodness of God extended to you through the Son. Don't delay. The wind doesn't have anything for you, but King Jesus does. The gospel is fundamentally, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God has sent Jesus to live the life that we couldn't, pay for our sin. And when you believe in him, you're not just redeemed, but he unlocks you into living a life that, 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 that is an eternal life in him. Would you come and see? You don't have to earn it. You don't have to figure enough out. You don't gotta have all the bad stuff weeded out of your life. He's really good at taking care of that later and fixing broken things. But if you've delayed actually coming to him, don't. No, there's nothing better out there. Come and find that he has what you need. Believer, if you feel the goading of the Lord, would you listen? An unbeliever, if you feel the drawing of the Lord, would you come? Ben, you can come back up today. We're gonna take communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. It says, for I received from the Lord, but I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we will play some songs and ask you to interact in prayer and make some margin for you to do that. But then come to the table if your faith is in Jesus and walk in this practice of seeing his body and his blood is enough and it feeds your soul and builds you up. Every time that you've been chasing wind or walking in another thing or distracted, you come and see it is you and it's all you and it's always been you. Thank you for the gift that you've given. Thank you for what you've done. Let me come and eat from the table again and remind my wondering heart that you're all that I've ever needed. And I pray that our hearts would be restored and built up at the table, all whose faith is in Jesus are welcome to come. Friends, I pray that we would take the editor's words seriously here. That we would treat this beyond just beautiful words and art, but that we would let the goading of the Lord lead us. He's good. He's worthy of our trust. And though it is scary sometimes to lay things down or lessen the chasing of our preferences, is it a good father that has something better for us every time we lay something down? Would you turn to him? And if you never have, would you pray and ask him to save you? And man, I'd be so happy to pray with you after this. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Will you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness. Lord, would you impress on our hearts that though discipline or goading doesn't always feel great in the moment, it is your kindness extended. Lord, help us to learn to fear you rightly, to have a healthy balance of fear and reverence and awe and obedience. King Jesus, come and lead your people. Lord, may the pursuits and the other things and the hedge bets, may they be put away. May we run towards you and see that you're good and that you're enough and that you're kind. Come, Holy Spirit, work in your people. Jesus, we're so thankful that you're the one shepherd who has always been speaking. But through your Holy Spirit, you continue to speak and draw and show us truth and speak to our hearts. Come and work. God, be glorified.
We love you. You're patient and you're kind, God. Amen.